Well, remain standing. One of the greatest privileges that God gives us is that He speaks to us. He speaks to us through His Word that He has given to us, that Word that we have in our Bibles this morning. And so we're going to turn to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. We're going to read through verse 30 this morning. I'm sorry, verse 26 this morning. The first 26 verses we'll read. Follow along as I read and as I do. Let us remember that these words are the inspired word of God given to us. Mark chapter 8. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts darkened or hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have, in your grace, given it to us, that we may know you, that we may know ourselves, that we may know Christ, that we may know his work that we may know your will for our lives, Father, and that we may know the 
glory of the gospel. We pray that as we look into this passage this morning that you would grant us uh, understanding, that you would grant us ears to hear, eyes to see what you have for us this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, if you are old enough, like me, you'll perhaps remember a man named Yogi Berra. Not Yogi Bear, children, Yogi Berra. Uh, He was a first a highly talented baseball player in the 1960s and then a highly talented coach and a highly talented manager in the 70s and into the 80s, mostly with the New York Yankees and the New York Mets. Apart from being such a good player and coach and manager, he was also known as a bit of a wordsmith, and he is known for his yogi-isms, some of which you probably have heard, some of which you may even use but may not recognize that they came from Yogi Berra. Uh, It ain't over till it's over is one of his. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Uh, The future ain't what it used to be. And it's like deja vu all over again. Now that last one especially is pertinent this morning because as we read this passage this morning, you might be feeling a little bit like that, like this is deja vu all over again. Most likely in the first part of the passage, this record of Jesus feeding, again, another huge crowd of people with meager resources, But if you look back into chapter 6 and chapter 7 and you put them alongside of chapter 8, the two sections show a number of similarities. It's almost as if someone who was writing this down got confused and rewrote the same events twice. Uh, There's a a feeding of the multitude. There's a crossing of the sea in a boat. There's a conflict with Pharisees. There's a discussion about bread and there's a healing. Just there in chapter 6 and 7, and now again in chapter 8. And actually, uh, liberal critical scholars say that that that's exactly what has happened, that these are a repetition, repetition, either intentional or accidental, that these these events have been retold. But there's several easy answers to that criticism, there usually is, to the things that liberal critics of the scripture uh, put forward. Uh, One is that despite the similarities, there are also quite a few differences in the accounts. Um, Regarding the two miraculous feedings, probably the clearest proof is that down in uh, the chapter here, in chapter 8, Jesus mentions both of the separate feedings together in one breath, in one sentence. And so though it may seem like deja vu all over again as we read these, there's actually a purpose that Mark has in choosing these similar events and arranging them in the way that he does. It's not a very flattering reason, but it's a necessary reason, and it is helpful not only for the people then, but for us people now. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at all of this that we read in sort of a superficial flyover 
way and, and see what Mark is doing with these passages and by the way that he has uh, arranged them. So let's look this morning in verses 1 through 26 at four things. We'll look at Jesus and the great crowd. We'll look at Jesus and the disputing Pharisees, Jesus and the unperceptive disciples, and finally Jesus and the blind man. We start with Jesus and the great crowd, again, the one that, that stands out to us the most. In verses 1 through 10, then we have a record of Jesus again miraculously feeding a multitude of people with just a few bits of bread and a few fish. And as I mentioned, this event here is very similar to what we saw. You probably remember it back in just chapter 6 in verses 30 through 44 in what most people refer to as the feeding of the 5,000. But as I mentioned, just as there are many similarities, there are also many differences, and they're both sort of important for us to look at and to see that the results of the two feedings are the same. So for instance, and again, we're just going to skim through these this morning, but in both instances, both feedings, Jesus is said to act because of his compassion that he has on the crowd. In the first feeding, his compassion has more of a, a spiritual flavor to it. it it's because, it's, Mark says, that because those in the crowd were like sheep without a shepherd, that Jesus has ministered to them in that, and he continues to minister as he feeds them. Here it's more, more physical, more because of their hunger, more because of the, the long time that they've been with Jesus. And Jesus even though we draw spiritual lessons from all of this, and, and that'll be true with the healing and all of the things that we'll look at, we don't want to forget that these are actual physical, historical events that took place. And he is concerned not only about the spiritual needs, but as a good shepherd, he's concerned about their physical needs, and that really stands out here. After a long time with Jesus and a, a concern that in this more desolate place, that the people will potentially, even it says in the text, they might not make it home if they leave. Verse 3 says, some of them have come from far away. He says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Now especially, we want to note here, the difference. one of the differences is that these people, unlike the, the 5,000 who had been with Jesus, remember a long day where he had been teaching them, here he's been teaching them, but they have been with him, the text says, it says they have been with me now for three days. So these people have been with Jesus, they've been uh, just subsisting on what they brought with them, and so it's been a long time, and Jesus says we need to do something about that. And as before, the problem is the same, that there is practically nothing to use to feed them. There's practically no food. A need that's recognized in the feeding of the 5,000 by the disciples uh, and here by Jesus himself. And remember, this is taking place, remember from last week, Jesus is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in this area, a uh, barren area, a Gentile area known as the Decapolis. Remember, he had been to Tyre, and when he left Tyre on the coast, he went up uh, by Sidon, which is even further no north, came around, came down on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and has been in this area of the Decapolis, the ten cities. 
And so they are without food. Uh, And there's nowhere nearby in this area even to purchase food. In the feeding of the 5,000, they were near Bethsaida. And so they talked about the fact that we would have to send somebody into town to buy a whole bunch of food for these people. How can we do that? Here, that's not even an option. There's nowhere near enough to, to get food. Also, as before, Jesus turns to his disciples And since he is wanting to teach them an important lesson here as well, he involves them just like he did with the 5,000. Remember that. It's the same way here in verse 5. He asks them, how many loaves do you have? Just like he had done earlier. They say, here, seven. A difference from the five in the earlier event. We also notice here that the, the fish are dealt with a little differently. There, there are fish, but here they're just called a few And by the way, the word is a different word for fish. It's a different kind of fish here in the Decapolis in this region, probably close to what we would call sardines. And these were uh, fish that were uh, part of the economy of of that region. Uh, But they are mentioned almost, almost as an afterthought. He asks how many loaves, and he directed the crowd to sit, and he breaks the bread and gives it to them. And then in verse 7, it says, And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. They get their own separate blessing. There's only a few of them, perhaps just a few scraps of fish that they have there on hand and that Jesus uses then to feed these people. The procedure is the same. Jesus takes the bread apart from the, the fact of dealing with the fish differently. Jesus takes the bread. He has the crowd sit down, though not in groups as it was earlier. So see, there's differences and there are similarities. Uh, he takes the bread. He breaks the bread. He gives thanks for the bread. Then he gives the bread, and he keeps giving the bread to the disciples to give to the people. And then, importantly, the text tells us that they ate and were satisfied. As before, a large amount is still left over, which Jesus specifically, again, has the disciples collect and make a note of, and Mark makes a note of it here, of the the amount that's left over, a large amount. Here, the baskets that are used in this second feeding are much larger baskets. We know that by the word that is used. In fact, it's the same word that will later be used in the book of Acts when Paul is let down in a basket over the walls of the city. It's the same word, so these baskets can be uh, quite large. And then the disciples get in the boat and sail across the sea. That's the same as before. Although here, Jesus goes with them. Remember, in the feeding of the 5,000, he sent them on, and he stayed and dismissed the crowd. But here, verse 10 says, Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. That's on, on the west side. So they go across the sea again. Now, of course, the upshot of, of this is that Jesus performs a substantial miracle here. I mean, this is a, a miracle over nature. This is a miracle that has to do with being. This is a creative miracle that Jesus does. As this distribution proceeds, there is bread where there was no bread. Seven loaves of bread becomes enough to feed 
a great crowd of people. Now, one of the major differences and one of the major similarities between the two events are are particularly important ones. The difference is, as I mentioned, where this takes place. This takes place in the Decapolis, which is a Gentile area. Jesus earlier, the feeding of the 5,000, was in Bethsaida, or just outside of Bethsaida, a, a Jewish city. And a demonstration there in that feeding of the 5,000 of, of who he is and of the compassion that he had. Here he's in a Gentile area. Certainly there are Jews that live here, and this would be really a, a mixture group of Jews and Gentiles, but the fact that there are Gentiles there is, a diff, is an important difference. This really points to Christ providing for the needs of a group that the makeup of which is very similar to what the church will be. Mixture of Jews and Gentiles. I also, I love how this is tied to the, the conversation. Remember the conversation a couple of weeks ago that Jesus had with the, the Gentile, the Syrophoenician woman in, in the last chapter? She came to him. Her daughter was possessed and she came to him to, to heal her. Remember that Jesus had said to her, the children must be fed first. Speaking, and you can go back and look at this if you don't remember this, speaking of the priority of Jesus' mission to the Jews first. But what did she say then? She said, remember, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And here now, in the feeding of the 4,000, is an illustration of that very thing happening. In the Gentile wilderness, Jesus again offers crumbs, glorious crumbs, to these people. By the way, there's one of the other differences sort of points out this idea of to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. In the record of Jesus feeding the 5,000, Remember, we took note of this when we looked at it, that the text says 5,000 men, right? So we said, well, you add the women that were there to that, we add the children to that, and there were 15,000 people there that Jesus fed. But here, in this episode, in verse 9, the text speaks of only 4,000 in total, a much smaller number. So sort of a, a picture in the numbers of, of the, the Jews being given, uh, the children being given the meal, and the crumbs still being given to those. And it's still enough crumbs, isn't it? Because we read the same thing happened with this group as happened with the 5,000, and that is that they all ate and were satisfied. And if we think of this in the flow of the history of redemption, remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago, that in just a short time from this event, a few short um, months even, that the gates to the kingdom of God are going to be thrown open to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. But in summary, in this opening section here of Jesus and the great crowd, the main similarities are these that the same Christ 
exercises the same divine power over nature. He performs the same miracle out of the same compassion with the same results. That they all ate and were all satisfied. So much so that there was much left over. That is the the picture of Jesus here, Jesus and the great crowd. The next part is Jesus and the disputing Pharisees. In verse 10, Mark uh, moves the narrative right along by saying, immediately, again, Mark's word, immediately to move the narrative along, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Again, on the western shore, not exactly sure where that is, uh, but it is back now in a Jewish area. Which brings us to another, though very brief here, confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Similar to what was recorded back at the beginning of chapter 7, here the Pharisees come to Jesus and Mark says that they began to argue with him. There in verse 11. Actually, the word indicates something stronger, that they're disputing with Jesus. They're haranguing him and demanding of him, demanding a sign from him. And their purpose, Mark gives it to us there in verse 11, it's to test him, to judge him and to reject him based on their criteria, their requirements, with the purpose to, to reassert their place of priority to, in authorizing who is an acceptable teacher and who is not. And this Jesus is clearly not. And so they come to him purposefully to give him a bad time. We've seen them reject Jesus already on the basis of of their tradition. They've rejected him because what? He doesn't wash in the appropriate way before a meal. Uh, He doesn't fast as their tradition demanded. They reject him because he eats with and keeps company with tax collectors and sinners. They've even taken it so far as to judge him of being empowered by Satan in the work that he did. Now they come and they demand of Jesus a sign to prove his authority. And of course they will judge if it's an appropriate sign. They are the ones Uh, who will come and do this. But Jesus has none of it. He responds first, in verse 12, with a sigh. Remember he did that last week too. Here it says, he sighed deeply in his spirit. You know what that's like. You've done that. You see the things that are going on in the world today. You watch the news. You read the paper. You look online. you, You... deal with different institutions. You see how things are going in our world today morally and politically and theologically. And sometimes you just have to sigh deeply in your spirit, to be grieved in your spirit, to shake your head at what's going on. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here as he is confronted again with the unbelief of the Pharisees and with the hostility of the Pharisees and with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Oh, and by the way, we have discussed this a little bit last week, uh, this 
word of Jesus sighing deeply is another one of those words that occur once. Remember the word from last week, the Greek phrase, hapox legomenon? Here's another one. And he asked them, he says, why does this generation seek a sign? It's rhetorical. It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't really wait for an answer. He doesn't expect an answer. The answer is included in the question, really. They shouldn't. The answer is because they don't believe. I mean, think about it. They come to Jesus asking for a sign. What has Jesus been doing? How many signs do they need? He's been doing sign after sign after sign after sign showing who he is. Proving who he is. We've been studying them over the last seven chapters. As Jesus has been teaching and preaching concerning the kingdom of God, which is his primary mission, he's also been punctuating that teaching with these signs that he does, these miracles that he has done. And the people have been recognizing them. It's been amazing them. Who is this that even the demons and the wind and the sea and the sickness and death all obey him? He does this with these great miracles. And he'll continue to do signs. Signs that he decides to do. Not signs that people can come to him and say, we demand that you do this. We will believe you if you do this like the atheists who say, I will believe God if he strikes me down. And be careful what you wish for. But the Pharisees here, the religious leaders, they've not believed. They haven't believed the signs that they've seen. They haven't believed the teaching that they've heard. They have opposed Jesus at every turn, even to the point of already joining forces with secular elements loyal to the Roman government as to how they might kill Jesus. And in their hostility toward Christ, they have come today to demand a sign that they will designate and they will accept. A lot of people like that today, aren't there? We will believe Christ, we'll believe the claims of Christ if he performs for us. If he shows us a sign and people chase the signs, they want to see something miraculous. They want to see something wonderful happen because they can't and won't believe what God has written in the book as to who his son is. And to them, I think Jesus would respond the same way that he responds to the Pharisees here in verse 12. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, He said, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus has done the signs, but but we and they, you see, cannot dictate the conditions of God's acting. We cannot dictate the conditions of God's saving and accepting us. Salvation is on his terms, not ours. Jesus has not come to give signs on demand. His work included the signs that he wished to give. And of course, the greatest sign that he gave, the sign par excellence that Jesus would give of his authority and of his person would be the resurrection. 
to come. His resurrection. So Jesus makes this statement that no sign will be given and and that sort of concludes the discussion. It reads very tersely here if we read it. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation and he left them. That's the end. Now we'll see in verse 22 that that they go to Bethsaida here as they leave. When when he leaves, it says that he left. He got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they're going to go to Bethsaida, which is up in the north part of the Sea of Galilee. But on the way, Jesus has an opportunity to speak with his disciples as they've all gotten here into the boat and leave. And that brings us to Jesus and the unperceptive disciples. In verse 14, as they abruptly, it seems, set out on their journey across the lake again, they get into the boat, Mark makes the note that they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. A lot of bread in this passage. And they don't bring any. Wow, they just had seven large baskets just the other day. And they forget to bring any. And apparently, in the text, that engendered some discussion here among the disciples. Which Jesus then takes advantage of to give them a warning based on what had just happened. In verse 15, we'll read verse 14 too. It says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he, that is Jesus, cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And his warning goes back, like I said, to what what had just happened. What they had just experienced on the shore here with the Pharisees. That exchange demonstrating the, the hypocrisy and the opposition of the Pharisees against Jesus. Something which the opposition especially was shared by Herod. Something which was foreshadowed in his treatment, remember we saw earlier, of John the Baptist. And we'll also see later that Herod himself is going to seek a sign from Jesus later in the gospel. But the warning here that comes from Jesus for his followers, for his disciples, to beware is this, to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Another bread word. The idea of leaven, of course, very common, a common um, idea, a common comparison in the scriptures where it stands for any kind of permeating influence, usually a negative one, almost always a negative one. Paul in Galatians says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that's the problem, right? A small bit, a small start just like a small starter of, of, of leavened dough will quickly spread through all of the dough. Just as a small amount of hypocrisy will quickly spread. A small amount of disregard for God and for his word will spread. A small amount of self-centeredness in a church will spread. And Jesus calls out all of these things that, that are present in the Pharisees and in the Roman government of the day and he says beware of those types of things don't let them into your 
understanding and into your activity, into your, um, your presence. But it goes right past them. They don't even respond in the text here to, to that statement of Jesus. After all, we see here that they have more important things to discuss, like who forgot the bread? Maybe they heard Jesus mention leaven, and that just made them think more about it. Maybe he's mad at us because we didn't bring any bread. But his rebuke to them is not even about bread. It's about faith. It's about understanding. And Jesus, who Mark notes here, is aware of this, then moves to speak to them directly, to confront them about their dullness, their lack of perception in regard to what they are seeing, what they are a part of. And quickly here in the text, he asks a series of other rhetorical questions to them, which comes to a crescendo, or a nadir, I guess it could be, in the sad and scathing question in verse 21. But he asks them, he says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? That's not what I'm talking about. He says, do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Jesus has asked them that before, or Mark's mentioned it of them before. They're not recognizing the significance of of being with Christ as he's revealed himself to them, not least of all in the feedings of these crowds. Remember when, after the first feeding, when they got on the boat and, and Jesus came to them walking on the water and came into the boat and talked to them? Mark records at the end of that episode in chapter 6, verse 52, speaking of the disciples, he says that they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand that this miracle was revealing who Jesus is. Then, in verse 18 here, he echoes the familiar charge to many of God's people here in Mark chapter 8. Throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah 6 and Jeremiah 5 and Ezekiel 12, several other places, look in verse 18. Jesus asked them, Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? Those repeated admonitions. Whoever has ears to hear, Jesus says, let him hear. And he says to the disciples, do you still not have those eyes? Do you still not have those ears as a part of this list? Do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Do you not have eyes to see? Do you not have ears to hear? And he continues to question them. Now, specifically about the feedings that we've seen He says to them in verse 19, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? He asks them a pointed question. He expects an answer now, and they give it to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. Now, the numbers here are sort of tempting to try to 
dig around for significance, but the important significance is that in both of those instances, again, Jesus was able to amply, abundantly, overabundantly supply what was needed to these men and women and children with much left over. And then he asks them the question that perhaps pierced their hearts as it surely pierces Jesus to have to ask it. And it's the question that comes to us likewise in our own lack of belief and our own spiritual blindness and deafness at times. In verse 21, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? A question that's not about bread. But the point is that they have not yet grasped who Jesus is. Despite being with him, despite seeing signs after signs themselves. The Pharisees haven't seen it, certainly, but neither Mark is saying here, Jesus is saying here, have the disciples. Then he makes another, Mark does another sharp transition here to verse 22, where we read of another encounter between Jesus and a blind man in verses 22 through 26. Now, this event is an illustration of the main point of the passage. Keep that in mind. This event is an illustration of the main point of the passage. The dullness, the unperceptiveness of Jesus' disciples. And though, again, it is illustrative, it is also literal. It happened. It took place. It took place in Bethsaida. And like the record of the feeding of the 4,000, this part of the passage here has many similarities with the other healing that we saw just recently when Jesus healed a deaf man. Remember that one. At the end of chapter 7. And just as with the similarities between those two stories here as well, Mark, by his wording, is telegraphing something to us. He's telegraphing the similarities to show us that the two are connected. Connected by the subject matter. Here in this passage, and we'll read it, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch them, touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. So a similarity with what we saw before with the deaf man. Deaf man. Here, as there, it begins with some people bringing a man to Jesus to touch him. They begged him to touch him. Here, as with the deaf man as well, verse 23 tells us that Jesus takes the man aside from the crowd. But here he doesn't just take him aside from the crowd. It says that he leads the man outside of the village. Again, maybe to kind of keep this on the lowdown, we talked about Jesus uh, wanting to restrict the, the spread of his fame as much as possible before the appropriate time. And it fits, that idea fits with Jesus' instruction here to the man who he takes out of the village. Then after he heals him, he tells the man, don't even go back into the village. 
Just go home. Because if he goes back into the village, it would immediately be obvious what has happened, and it would obviously be obvious who had done it. So he leads them out of the village, and like with the deaf man, Jesus, again, in this healing, uses spittle to heal this man. And, as before, Jesus also touches the part of the body that he's going to heal. Here he touches the man's eyes. But, here, at the end of verse 23, in a detail that is unique to all of Jesus' healings, we read that, again verse 23, that when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. See, Jesus, in verse 25, lays his hands on him again, lays his hands on him first and asks him the question. Then he lays his hands on him again, and his sight is completely restored. And he sees everything clearly. Another marvelous miracle wrought by Christ. The the, the healing of blindness. Accomplished in very much the same way as his healing of the deaf man had been. The result is a full and complete restoration of this man's sight. But there's still a difficulty here. What about this need, apparently, for the second attempt at healing this man? And that's a fair question. I don't know if if, if you, but for me, for years, as I read this passage... I would always ask myself, why in this case did Jesus have to try twice to heal this man? All of the rest of Jesus' healings, and we often make much of this, that unlike the charlatans then and now, that Jesus' healings were instant, they were complete. We even talked about that last week. But what happened here? Was Jesus not concentrating? Was he tired? Well, we know those cannot be the reason. In fact, knowing what the Bible says and reveals about Jesus, the only explanation, beloved, is that Jesus, for some reason, intended to take two passes at this miracle. Another question to ask is why would Mark choose to include this in his gospel? By the way, he's the only one that does. We know that the gospel writers each chose of of all of the events that Jesus uh, was involved in, all of the miracles in Jesus' ministry that the different gospel writers, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, all choose different events as meets the need of their purpose to include. And they don't all include the same events. And this miracle occurs only in Mark. The same is true, by the way, with the healing of the deaf man back in chapter 7. Well, this all makes sense when we see these verses as a whole, which is why we went through this whole section at once this morning. These events 
are, are paralleled with the events in chapters 6 and 7. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. Two confrontations with the Pharisees. Two parallel healing accounts now. A deaf man and a blind man. And two discussions between Jesus and his disciples with this one here in chapter 8 being put right in the middle of the passage where Jesus reproves his disciples for their lack of understanding in light of the signs that they have been given. And Jesus questions in verse 18, Jesus' questions in verse 18 and verse 21 come back to importance here. He said in verse 18, having eyes do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And verse 21, do you not yet understand? Well, beloved, what Jesus is doing, what Mark is doing, in putting these stories here that are so similar to other ones that we've seen, is to show us that due to the disciples' lack of understanding that Jesus has had to repeat lessons. And due to his compassion for them and for their future ministry as the leaders of the church, he did repeat the lessons. Mark shows us to point out their lack, to point out their lack of hearing, ears, and seeing eyes even though they had been granted, as we learned earlier, to see all of these things. They had been granted to have knowledge of the kingdom of God, and yet they didn't see God standing before them. They had ears, but they hadn't heard. They had eyes, but they hadn't yet seen. Once was not enough for them to see what they needed to see, and so Christ, in his grace, repeats the lessons for them. They needed some deja vu all over again to reinforce the lessons that Jesus was teaching them. They haven't seen things clearly the first time. And so Jesus teaches them again, and Mark records here these second lessons right after the first lessons. And Jesus is giving here an object lesson of the spiritual myopia of the disciples. And to do that, Jesus made the decision, and the Holy Spirit led Mark to record it, of this particular healing of Jesus giving sight to this man, not instantaneously, but in two steps. The disciples were not grasping the material that Jesus was delivering to him through his teaching and his activity as he prepared them to take over after his death and his resurrection and his ascension, the task of proclaiming the good news. And so Jesus does this miracle in a way where he had to again, in order to bring this man to full sight, he did it twice. Just like with the disciples, as he's working with them and teaching them, he has to show them things twice, at least twice. But the good news in this passage, twice in this passage, is that Jesus asked the disciples, he says, do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? And the hope is in the not yet. Because they will understand. But it will be a mixture here in the Gospels of understanding and of a lack of understanding. 
And that's what we're going to follow through in, this, in the next section of Mark's book, which begins with the next verse that we'll look at next week. And it goes through the middle of chapter 10. And in those chapters, Mark is going to show that Jesus needs to again and again remind the disciples. And so this passage here is a bridge. This last miracle is a bridge to those things. And a reminder that we also often need to repeat the same lessons. Most often because we don't learn them the first time. Do you understand these things this morning? Do you understand that this Jesus is the one, this one who created bread from no bread is the same one who created universe from no universe? He is the one who created you. He is the one who is God and became man in order to save man from their sins. If you don't yet understand that, seek him today. If you have sought him, if you have found him, or rather if he has found you and you are still not understanding, go to God's word. See the lessons, see the teachings given, repeated. Understand them. Let him who lacks wisdom ask from God, and it will be given to him. But let us understand. Let us not repeat the, the errors of the disciples who needed to be told over and over again what was right in front of them, that Jesus is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have abundant grace to teach us as you teach your disciples as many times as needed the lessons of who you are. We pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That we would understand, O oh God, who you are. That we would understand the work of your Son. We pray, Lord, that you would Bless us as we consider that he is the living bread who has come down from heaven and who gives eternal life. And as we turn our attention now to the object lesson of that truth in the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would bless us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.